<laughs> How much money you got? <laughs> Not <very much. laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, problem solved. <laughs> it's a happy day already. Hey, also reach in, into the bulletin and, and grab the insert. There's an MPG on one side that you can use this week to go over some of the things that we're going to be talking about today in a very practical way. There's a, a scripture. MPG stands for memorize. So we'll give you a scripture to memorize. There will be a prayer to pray that's specific to this message and then some things to do to glorify God that also pertain to the message this morning. On the other side, it says, The Great Anger. That is the title of the sermon this morning. Some space and fill in the blanks. The text that Paul just read to us also on the front page. We will go through that this morning. Now, uh, next week, we are going to end out our series on Jonah the little book with a big message, the book of Jonah, the old book with a very contemporary, a very modern message. And the theme verse that we have been using as we talk about Jonah is this. It's up here on the screen. It goes like this. God is up to something in the world. A lot of times it's easy for us to think that God is far off, that God is disconnected. We sort of live in a culture of hybrid deism where we think that God has created everything. He put the laws of nature in motion, but then he kind of goes away and we're the ones left in charge. We don't, as disciples of Jesus, believe that's true. We believe that God is very active and engaged with his world right now. That God is up to something in the world and it involves his special people. And by special, I mean those that live in faithfulness and trust with God. God is up to something in the world, and it involves His special people. The book of Jonah, as we have also seen, helps us to understand even more profoundly our mission statement. The book of Jonah resonates very loudly with the mission statement, those three dots, what it means to love God without reservations, to love God without any reservations whatsoever to be holy and completely and fully and utterly given to him. It also tells us what it means to love people without discrimination. That there are uh, people all over this world that God loves and we want to love them in the same way. And then finally, to change the world beyond imagination. To bring the gospel into the world is also to bring in the greatest offer, the offer to enter the kingdom of God is the greatest offer that a human being will ever receive. That is changing the world beyond imagination. Now to recap, if this is your first time with us or maybe first time live streaming, the book of Jonah begins in chapter 1 like this. God comes to the prophet Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh and to preach. Jonah, in this really surprising act of defiance, gives God his resignation letter and flees in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He gets on a ship to cross the Mediterranean to Tarshish, but God in heaven does not accept the resignation letter, and God from heaven hurls, that's the verb, like a javelin, he hurls a storm at the ship to stop it in its track on the sea. Now everyone on the boat is terrorized. They are absolutely petrified with fear. They're praying, 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 help, 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 except for one guy on the boat, a guy by the name of Jonah. He is asleep in the bottom of the boat where the captain rebukes him, commands him to pray to his God, but, but Jonah doesn't do this. 
Everybody continues praying to their God with a little g. Jonah does not pray to his God with a big g. And nothing works to calm the storm. And Jonah says, well, if you really want to know, the storm is on account of me. If you want the storm to end, you can throw me into the water. And the sailors look at him and say, you know, we're good people. We can't do that. And so they continue to try their make their way, but to no avail. And finally, into the sea, they toss Jonah. The sea becomes calm. And the sailors on the ship, in this uh, tremendous bit of irony, they are the ones that begin to worship God and to make vows to Him. Jonah, though, is going down, 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 down in the water, where he is swallowed by a great Jonah-swallowing fish, And inside of the great Jonah swallowing fish, he is kept alive for three days and three nights. And it's in the belly of the great fish that Jonah begins to recover his prayer voice. And at the end of the prayer, which is now the end of Jonah chapter 2, that prayer, that version that we have, or or the portion of it that we have, ends with these words, Jonah chapter 2 verse 10, salvation comes from the Lord. One of the most important passages in the entire Bible, Hebrew Scriptures, Christian Scriptures, one of the most important. I want you to say this verse with me. Salvation comes from the Lord. Let's say it one more time. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, at that moment that he prays that, the whale vomits Jonah onto the shore. And now we read at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I'm going to give you. And Jonah gets up off the beach, kind of wipes off the shrimp cocktail. He walks across the desert to Nineveh. He enters into that great city and he preaches. Now in the original language, there's only about five words in the Hebrew language. I mean, it's not this gigantic sermon. But it goes like this in English. Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, beginning with the people in the street and going all the way up to the king, they believe the message, and they begin to repent, and they begin to, 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 uh, to, to sit in sackcloth and in ashes and repent. And they, they repent in such an authentic and widespread way that the gracious God in heaven forgives them and relents from the calamity that he was going to send on that city. They repent. Jonah collapses. They repent and come to God, and Jonah collapses, which is chapter 4. And in this collapse of Jonah, I want us to consider three things. The revelation of anger, the revelation of the plant, and the revelation of cosmic love. Now, all of these are going to be about opening Jonah's eyes. Let's begin with the revelation of anger. After the great success of preaching, I mean, I don't know a preacher worth his salt that wouldn't love to see that one day. You know, one sermon, five words, and a whole city repent and turn to God. After the great success of that sermon, Nineveh repenting and turning to God, you would think that Jonah would be jumping up and down with excitement that the next verse would say, and everybody went home and lived happily ever after. But no. Look at verse 1. Everybody has repented. The calamity's not coming. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. 
I mean, what he thought was right was that this city would be absolutely desolate. There would be nothing but smoke rising in, you know, from the smoldering ashes. And the fact that God has allowed them to continue in their repentance and in their, their declaring a fast, and even the animals are involved, and God relenting from destroying this city, Jonah does not have to see destruction. It seemed very wrong to him. And he became angry. He became angry. Now let's think about this. Jonah has witnessed a culture of ruthless violence and remarkable evil. I mean, when, when you think about the ancient empire of Assyria, its capital Nineveh, you're thinking about a people where genocide is sort of a state policy. That what they would do to conquered people, and they're, they're, they're lost for blood and for war, and not just victory, but decimating whole cities and peoples was unrivaled in the ancient world. And, and Jonah has witnessed this culture of ruthless violence and remarkable evil turned to God, and he just can't take that. He has seen the greatest demonstration of grace in his life. He has seen the greatest demonstration of forgiveness in his life, and he's just hacked. He is just hacked. You know the word anger appears about five times in this chapter. When anger, and anger is... is a good emotion, can be, a good emotion. When anger erupts in us, it is a, a, a symptom that something is wrong, right? We're either fearful or, or we're in pain or we're frustrated. Or something. You know, anger is sort of a secondary emotion that waves the flag saying, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. A fellow by the name of Eugene Peterson, who wrote a book on Jonah called The Unpredictable Plant, says this about anger. What anger fails to do is to tell us whether the anger is outside or inside of us. What anger fails to do is to tell us whether the anger is outside or inside us. Here's what he means. We assume that anger is on the outside, so we bicker with our spouse or we yell at the kids or we even get into a feud with God. They've done something wrong, and we are eager to jump into the squabble. But if we're sensitive, just for a moment, if we're, we're sensitive, we take a breath, we're honest with our heart, we discover that many times, probably more times than not, our anger is linked to something misguided and mistaken inside of us. At the beginning of Jonah, we think that God's big problem in this story is the evil in Nineveh and what to do about it. Now, don't get me wrong. Nineveh is a problem. It is a horrific problem. Nineveh is not good. It's an evil. It's got to be dealt with. But Nineveh is not the only problem that God has to deal with in the book of Jonah. Jonah's the other problem. Jonah is the other problem that God has to deal with. Now, notice that there are two conversations between Jonah and God up to this point in the book. In the first prayer or conversation with God, in the belly of the great fish, 
Jonah's praying, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live, because salvation comes from the Lord. Second prayer, where we are today. I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, because salvation comes from the Lord, even for the Ninevites. Jonah is angry because he does not get God's love. He wants God's grace to be free for him in the belly of the great fish, but not for his enemies. He wants God's love to be lavish for him, but not for the Ninevites. He wants God's love to be extravagant and gracious to him, but not for the Assyrians. Now, at the root of his anger is this. We can put it in a nutshell. At the root of his anger is this. Jonah wants an outcome that's contradictory to the nature of God. Jonah is wanting an outcome that's contradictory to the nature of God. Remember the prayer? We've gone over this in just about every sermon on Jonah. But Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He prayed to the Lord. Everybody's repented. Everything's great. Except to Jonah, it seemed very wrong. And he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Why, if you just listened to me, I wouldn't have to be here right now. That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knew this about God. Now, Lord, because you have, because you have saved the Ninevites, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, here's the thing about God that's really pretty wonderful. You know, right now, and, and, and you know, I don't want to see it, because I'm thinking, I'll confess, I'm thinking this, I, but you don't have to show me your hand. But you know, right now what we're thinking is, man, how, how much does God have to take from Jonah? This would be the perfect opportunity for there to be some lightning bolts that go in, right, right into the ground and just blow him to pieces. But notice what happens. The Lord replied, after all of this that's been said by Jonah, is it right? Not do you have the right, but is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And how does Jonah respond? How does Jonah respond to all this? Here's, he doesn't. That's how he responds. He completely ignores God's question, and he walks off. Aren't you glad that God is so patient? God will need to reveal to Jonah the presence of a rival God. God, in this moment, is needing to reveal to Jonah that he has an idol in his heart. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about, in the sermon series, What Happened to Me? how sometimes the, the ignoring of the idol in our heart can lead to some really tough things happening in life? Well, remember, an idol is something, as we defined it, that we are convinced we can't live without. To lose it is to lose our reason for living. If I lose this, I don't have a reason to live. And so here we have Jonah looking into the face of God and saying, I have no reason to live when he's looking into the face, when God's face is the only reason worth living for. Except there's an idol in his heart. 
except there's an idol in his heart. Now here's what's happening. Jonah is using the God of heaven to serve and to secure the rival God that's in his heart, which is Israel's national security. Jonah is using the God who created the heavens and the earth in the service of his rival God. And this is the reason he wants to die, because you'll either die for God or you'll die for the idol. Anne Lamott wrote some years ago a statement that I thought incredibly insightful and especially germane to what we're talking about this morning. Anne Lamont says, you can tell you've made God in your image when it turns out he hates the same people you do. You can tell that you have made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. Miroslav Volf, uh, uh, probably one of the top uh, living theologians in the United States right now, who has written so much on forgiveness and grace, having himself as a crow uh, grown up in, in the worn, torn country, his homeland of Croatia, writes, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. That's Jonah. And this is why we need to have the revelation of the plant. The revelation of the plant. So Jonah decides he's going to walk off from God. So Jonah goes east of the city to see what will happen. The fact that he goes east, that east is the direction, is not incidental. Going east hints at being at odds with the will of God in your life. Think about Adam and Eve after the eating of the forbidden fruit. In Genesis chapter 3, they go east of Eden. When Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4, he goes east to the city of Nod, to the land of Nod. Lot goes eastward towards Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 13. East is sort of an indicator. It's a, a cheat code in the text letting us know that, that Jonah and God are not on the same page. And while Jonah is waiting in the heat, now having moved east of the city, God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him some shade. Now this is not the first time that God has done this in the book of Jonah, right? Jonah is fleeing to Tarshish on a ship, and God hurls a storm at the boat. Later, Jonah is swallowed by a great fish that God provides, and he lives for three days and nights underwater. Now there is a plant provided to give shade to Jonah to relieve him of his discomfort. Now, discomfort is a really interesting word. In the Hebrew language, there is sort of a wide semantic scope. So the plant is raised up as shade to give Jonah a little relief from his discomfort or something bad or his evil. That's the semantic range of this, of this word. God is doing this to deliver Jonah from his evil. But God is not done in just providing the shade. God provides a worm to chew the plant to pieces. And God is still not done at this point. God appoints a scorching wind to come and for the sun to blaze on Jonah's head. And he, Jonah, verse 8, wanted to die. I mean, this guy has a death wish. And said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God engages Jonah again. God is patient. God is patient. God said to Jonah, Is it right 
for you to be angry about the plan. It is, he said, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, a very common statement in the Bible, a very persistent statement in the Bible is this, to have ears that hear and eyes to see. To have ears to hear, eyes to see. Now, there is in Jonah two subtle, even perhaps subliminal lessons if Jonah will have ears to hear and eyes to see that surround this plant. The first is this, lesson one. God, not Jonah, runs the universe. If Jonah thinks he's running the universe, the wrong guy is running the universe. The storm-hurling, great fish-creating, shade-plant-producing, hungry worm-appointing, scorching wind-sending, evil Nineveh-forgiving creator of the universe is still in charge, and Jonah has to open his eyes to that fact. Lesson number two. Jonah does not control God's love or grace. And neither do we. Jonah does not control God's love or grace. Jonah wanted the grace when he hit bottom personally. Jonah is now offended when grace goes to someone else who has hit bottom in their life. And the irony is that God is having a harder time. The irony is that God is having a more difficult time saving Jonah than he does the pagan sailors on the boat that's bound to Tarshish or the entire culture and city of the barbaric and vicious people of Assyria. It's both comical and tragic. And you can't make this up if you tried. This happened. The revelation of a cosmic love is where we'll end today. I don't know about you, but I am very much comforted and encouraged with the ending words of God to Jonah. I mean, God is so patient with our stubborn hearts, our, our failures of understanding, and our scandalous grace amnesia-driven days. I mean, do you ever live a day where you're bebopping along, and the next thing you know, you realize that some anger or something's overtaken you, and you're, you're reminded that you have been saved by grace and that you live in God's grace, and all of a sudden you realize, man, I have had a case of grace amnesia today. That's Jonah. Grace amnesia, driven days. And God looks at Jonah and he says, you are concerned about a plant and not people implied made in the image of God? God says, you are concerned about something that is here today and gone tomorrow? What would the world look like if you were in charge, Jonah? And God says, I am concerned about a city of more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand, plus many animals. God loves people and God loves animals. Psalm 36, God, you save humans and animals alike. Not just Jonah, the Psalms see it too. And Psalm 33, verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. Do we believe this? When Jesus came, the people he had the hardest time with were not the people that everyone put on their no way list. Remember that from last week? No way that person could ever be saved. No way that woman would ever change. 
when Jesus came, the people he had the hardest time with were not the people that everyone was putting on the no-way list. It was not the prostitutes. It was not the tax collectors. It was not you know, the, 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 the sinners. Not the people that you would associate with Nineveh. Jesus had the hardest time with the people who considered themselves experts on God's love. And there's a lesson here. You know, I know what it took. I, you know, I'm not much of a scholar in anything. I mean, I've, but there's, there's one area of scholarship on which I'm the greatest academic in this room. And that is what God has done in the life of Mark Absher. And when I think about that love and how he loved me, and even to this day, just marveling and just in awe of the fact that God would love me, that God would save me, when I was a wrecking ball in my life, that God would love me is a reminder that God's love is so vast and so deep and, and so wide that I, even as much as I know and have learned about it today, there's still so much to learn. And that's true for each and every one of us here. We assume we need to assume that God's love is wider and longer and higher and deeper than your present understanding and experience of it. The worst thing that can happen to a church is they get to a place where they think that they understand completely the infinite love of God. We need to spend the rest of our life pondering and growing and understanding what it means to love like God. To love people the way that God loves all all people. And the reason is that there is a little bit of Jonah in each of us, whether we want to admit it or not. That's why we have to think and meditate and contemplate and struggle with the love of God every day to understand it more deeply, to drive out that little bit, that little Jonah in each of us. We assume that God sees and agrees with our categories for people. God does not have that same category, list of categories. God loves to see people as my sons and my daughters. That's why Jesus died. I wish I had a more profound way of saying it, but I'll say it this way. All people matter to God, and God wants to matter to all people. All people matter to God, and God wants to matter to all people. One day, centuries later, son of a carpenter by the name of Jesus, the greater Jonah, found himself once again in the midst of a bunch of lesser Jonas who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else. And Jesus tells this incredible parable, two men, that's how the parable starts, two men, two human beings. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood apart. That means, you know, he would not include himself with other people. And he said, Luke 18, verse 11, God, I thank you that I am, say it with me, not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this cat over here, this tax collector. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, would not even look up to God, and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus said, he's the one that went home justified. All the darkness, all the evil, all the discord, all the violence and the malice and the wickedness of this world came down upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. Evil was going to have not just its way, but its fullest way with him in crucifixion. But God is up to something in the world, and it involves his faithful people, of which Jesus is the faithful. God was reconciling a world of should-know-better-runaway-prophets and Ninevites and prostitutes and tax collectors and Jews and Gentiles and Americans and Africans and Asians and Europeans, Republicans and Democrats, rich, poor, murderers and thieves into the one body of Christ called the church. And that is what God is calling us to do in this great city that we live in, is to see that we're not the ones that run this universe. It's God that runs the universe. It, it is God's creation. And that we do not control His love. We do not control His grace. But we are the recipients of it and therefore become conduits of it. We are not a dead end. It doesn't end with us and go no further. If it does, it just gets stagnant. But as it passes from God through Jesus to us and to other people, there are more and more people that raise their hands in praise and thankfulness in worship of God because He is the one who loves the world to the point that He's willing to give His Son. That whoever would believe on that Son who died on the cross for our sins, that He died the, he died the death that we should have died and He lived the life that we should have lived, that He is, he is going to pass on to us that resurrection that we should not perish but have everlasting life, then we find that little Jonah in us being driven out. And what seems very wrong to us is when people don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Let's stand and sing.